Hey, y'all, from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Today, we're going to talk about farms and race and the Mississippi Delta. My guest is Van Newkirk. He writes for The Atlantic, and he's out with a cover story for the magazine all about those three things. The article is called The Great Land Robbery, the shameful story of how one million black families have been ripped from their farms. This piece chronicles how, over decades, through legal and illegal means, through government programs and individual actions, white people in Mississippi basically swindled black farmers out of thousands and thousands of acres of farmland. The Scott family plays a big role in this story. They were one of the largest black land-owning families in the state of Mississippi. This family descends from Ed Scott Sr., He was born in 1886, just one generation removed from actual slavery. Ed Scott Sr. built a farming empire that, by the time he died in 1957, was more than 1,000 acres. The Scott family, like many other black families, lost a lot of that land. So much so, and in such predatory ways, that eventually the federal government had to pay the Scott family millions of dollars. The story of the Scott family and thousands of other black families in the Delta losing their land and fighting to get it back. It is a story that is hugely relevant to our politics right now and conversations about systemic racism and inequality and reparations. Our conversation, like Van's story, begins with Walena Scott White. She is the granddaughter of Ed Scott Sr. And Van told me what happened to her family and why it happened to so many others like them. Really, uh, I met Willina Scott White by chance. I was at a book signing in Oxford, Mississippi. And uh, she was there, and, you know, we just started talking a little bit. Um, And it was clear to me almost immediately that she was the person I was looking for. She's an amateur historian. Um, She has collected almost every single piece of her family history going back to, like, 1880-something. Wow in these binders that she keeps in her kitchen. Uh, She wants to build a museum. And Uh she's also possessed of the same kind of impossible spirit of will that her father and grandfather were. So she, uh, it became clear that she was going to help me tell the story from 1880-something to now in a way that uh, almost really no other person on earth would be able to do it. She humanized it. I mean, I love how in the lead... You're talking about how she comes to the pickup truck with the pork chop sandwich for you. <laughs> like, she's just like real people. But, you know, the story of her family, this black farming family, you kind of trace their history. And it shows how for decades, if not centuries, black farmers in the South were swindled out of their land. Right. So I I use the story of her family, of the Scots, mm-hmm. uh, who were one of the early uh, sets of, uh, one of the second generation, rather, of landowners, mm-hmm. of black landowners in Mississippi, who over the course of a century, um, they kind of, their story is this rise, fall, and rise again. Um, they, they amass a thousand acres of land. They make it through all these signature moments in Mississippi civil rights history. You know, they, they, they're down the street from uh, where Emmett Till was lynched. Wow. The, the farmland is literally around the corner from where Fannie Lou Hamer is let, uh, laid to rest. Wow. They, uh, Ed Scott Jr. provided lunches for the Freedom Riders. Really? And yeah, yeah, they have this long history there. And they're, they're like... Uh, you know, like uh, I don't want to like Forrest Gump was 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 the bumbling version of this, but they're this, they, their their stories <laughs> weave 
in and Weep out, woven history. in and out of history. Yeah. Um, and wow. they do really well, even facing discrimination as black folks. Uh, they still manage to overcome, keep overcoming. They, when, when they are not offered municipal water services, they decide to, to dig the pipes themselves. Like they're wow. those type of folks. Yeah. But when they come to a spot where they really do need federal help, they aren't given what they deserve and what they are entitled to. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So this family, like many other black families after the end of slavery, uh, they tried to acquire land. Um, A lot of these these folks knew how to farm and they wanted to now farm for themselves. And basically, as soon as freed black slaves began to legally acquire land once they were free, um, white people tried to get them off of it. (laughs) What kind of stuff were they doing back then? (laughs) So back then, it really was a Wild West. You know, it really? was, there was not a whole lot of legal intervention if, say, somebody wanted to just kind of lean on you. And What does uh, that say, mean, to lean on? Well, somebody come to your land with enough guns and uh, say, well, you know, maybe there's pretext. Oh, you know, maybe you were laid on a loan and uh, we got to take it off your hands. But sometimes there wasn't pretext. Or mm. uh, back then, you know, there weren't a whole lot of banks that black folks could go to. Yeah, so, and they had to rely on just the kindness of white people to get credit and loans. And, you know, those credits and loans would be distributed unfairly. <laughs> right. Um, it got a little bit more sophisticated as, as we got into the 20th century. You had people uh, defrauding black folks out via tax assessments. So you'd have a state or local or even federal tax assessor come and say your land was worth way more than what it was worth. So you oh, couldn't pay the taxes. Go up. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And that was just a common way of doing it. Um, you also had uh, lots of black folks couldn't get money from the banks, which itself was a, a, a way to, to get them off their land. But when they couldn't get money from the banks, they had to go to the plantation owner for money. And the plantation wow. owner could say, I don't want you competing with me, so I'm not going to give you a money. Wow. Um, and then when the federal government got involved, it gave white folks even more tools in an arsenal to uh, run black folks off their land. So it became standard in the 20th century for all farmers to ask the federal government for money to for helping with planting. Mm-hmm. And the way it was administered was by locally elected boards. So uh, most of the folks who were on these boards were like the plantation owners because they could vote. So mm-hmm. if they didn't want a black person owning land, they, wanted, they thought you were better off as a sharecropper. If you were uppity, too loud, if you protested a little bit, they could, they could just deny, deny you. Wow. And also they, they, they ran all the places where you needed to get equipment from. It was it was like a, a a beginning to end racket, where at any point where you needed help from somebody else, white folks could pull the plug. So what exactly happened to the Scott family, to Walena's family? Because at one point her family had what like a thousand acres or something, and then it began to be stripped away from them. Yeah, so they just they build this thriving uh, agricultural enterprise that the whole family. You know, distant relatives, cousins all get involved in. Um, it's one of those situations where, like, you know, third, fourth cousins will be living in, like, the same square mile and everybody will be working mm. on the farm, right? And they mm. did build up uh, under Ed Scott Sr. and Jr., about a 1,000 acres of land, uh, become one of the largest black landowners in the state. And uh, they are kind of a symbol, uh, even among yeah. the civil rights movement, of black uh, self-sustainability. You know, the yeah. civil rights movement, when it starts in, in, in rural areas especially, is very much about, like, it's agrarian. It's about getting folks back to the land. It's about sharing the fruits of the labor 
with the community and uh, making sure that people can own the, the means of production over their food. Mm-hmm. And they are a symbol of that. You know, they, they, yeah. they, uh, Ed Scott Jr. is not just a, uh, a landlord. He sends the folks who work for him. He sends their kids to college. Wow. He, they, they build this big community that's almost like a model community for yeah. civil rights in the, in, yeah. the, in the South. And then what happens? Well, then here's the drop, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, in the 70s and 80s, uh, farmers across the country, not just black farmers, not just the Scots, face a huge inflation crisis. Uh, mm. it, it becomes almost impossible to farm at any type of scale without federal money. And to mm. that point, the Scots had been able to av- mostly avoid federal funding. They were just that successful. Um, gotcha. And so... Ed Scott Jr. finds a, uh, a white lawyer who helps him go down to the Farmers Home Administration office. It's a federal that's, program. That's a federal program run by the USDA. They give mm-hmm. out loans. Mm-hmm. They go down there and they, okay, they give him a little loan that he needs for to uh, grow his crops. Comes back the next year without the white lawyer and with a new truck. Mm-hmm. And they claim the, the, the guy in the office was like, whoa, 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 hey. You got a new truck and you don't have the white guy with you. What, what What's going on here? Wow. So he was mad at this symbol of his success. Well, he was And also mad that he was there without a white guy. Yeah. He was, he was a little, I guess, you know, he was a little uppity. Wow. Um, and, and so very quickly, the local uh, people who are administering federal funds become hostile to the uh, Scott family. Huh. And this is when also the time when uh, people across the country, outside of the South, start eating catfish. And the reason why that happens is because lots of different programs, both federal and state in Mississippi, start pouring in billions of dollars into creating from nothing a catfish industry. Why? (laughs) I don't mind. I love me some catfish. I love me some catfish. Uh, (laughs) It it, it is super profitable. It's it's during a time when um, they just like kind of find a new market, but also... It is a uh, another way when row crops, when, when when stuff you plant in the ground is failing, failing, they found this new market where they could tra- the you need a certain type of soil, and that soil is found in the delta. Gotcha. So you could almost immediately transform these farmlands if you dig them, just dig a huh. little bit. You could, can like create catfish, catfish ponds. Catfish ponds. Okay, so then yeah. the Scott family tries to do that. Does mm-hmm. the government help them do that? <laughs> no, the government's busy giving so much money to white farmers and they basically give the white farmers millions of dollars from the federal government to go into catfish and it saves lots of their operation. Black uh-huh. farmers don't really get that. This is so extreme, the disparity between what these federal programs give to white farmers versus black farmers. The USDA had to pay out some billions of dollars for that disparity recently, right? Right. In the uh, 90s, uh, uh, one of the largest class action suits against the USDA, against the federal government, um, is the black farmers lawsuit, Pickford v. Glickman. And uh, the Scots are actually one of the largest plaintiffs in that case. During the 70s and 80s, the USDA essentially disbanded its uh, civil rights office. They had no way for these black farmers to even adjudicate or, or uh, make complaints about what was happening. And they also had folks like this, these, these agents who were uh, discriminated against the Scots. They were operating on similar premises across the South. So in the 90s, a lot of these folks, including the Scots, got together and uh, won a, a $1.5 billion settlement. Wow. Another wow. billion was added by the Obama administration. And so uh-huh. 
in just 14 years, mm-hmm. from 1950 to 1964, in just Mississippi, mm-hmm. the amount of land lost or stolen it, it comes close to perhaps $7 billion. All right, time for a break here. In a minute, Van explains a sort of epiphany he had as a millennial writer working on this story. BRB. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Zoom. When you can't be there in person, Zoom. Zoom is used by millions to connect face-to-face, across town or around the world. Share files, video, anything, and connect through any device, desktop, laptop, tablet, smartphone, or conference room system. Zoom video conferencing, Zoom rooms, Zoom video webinars, and Zoom phone lets you do business at the speed of Zoom. Visit Zoom online to set up your free account today. Meet happy with Zoom. The yield curve has inverted. In the past, this has been an indicator that a recession is on its way. But will this time be different? Listen to The Indicator from Planet Money, NPR's daily economics podcast, to find out. What was your biggest takeaway, biggest lesson learned for you in working on this story? As much as I was interested in doing this story, the deeper significance of ownership of a thing, of having land, of having a place to put your name on, Mm. of having a place to put your kids' names on, Mm. I don't know if I quite understood that significance. The scale. You know, like, I'm a millennial. We, we, We... we rent everywhere. And we, we don't want to own move all across the place. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we don't want to own anything. Yeah. Um, I didn't. I don't know if I ever really understood why my great grandmother was so adamant that my, in her will, that nobody ever sell her house or her or her farmland or the acres she owned across the street from where she lived. I don't know if I understood that until I wrote this piece, and yeah. and and going and seeing, on the Scotts' property, they have their own uh, cemetery where the where Ed Scott uh, Jr. and Sr. are buried and where the, the, the current generation of Scots intends to be buried. And seeing that and realizing that there's this metaphysical significance to this place for mm. them, mm. you know, that, that, that... That's powerful. That's powerful, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so part of my backstory that really came to the forefront reading your piece and prepping for this interview. My father was a rancher. I grew up in South Texas and he owned about 200 acres uh, outside of the Quero Yoakum area in East Texas. Uh, Texas will know exactly where that is. And he, you know, he ran, he farmed on it, ranched on it. At one point, he had several hundred head of cattle on the land. It came down to him through his family. But after he died, we sold it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the money went to good use to help me pay off my student loans. But, like, I wonder, especially reading your piece, like, as a black family, should we have kept it? Well, if if you talk to some of the uh, advocates I talk to, <laughs> mm-hmm. they have very strong feelings about people keeping their land. But, you know, we understand everybody has, number one, is valuable, and people have their own circumstances and got to make money, right? Yeah. How do we balance those things? Well, it's also like, what is our historical debt to our ancestors? Mm. Like, at, at a certain point... I never asked my father while he was alive how hard it was to keep that land, whether or not his, him and his family struggled in maintaining it, what they had to fight to have it. I never asked. And now I don't know. 
And I wonder if, like, I don't know, this is getting real deep now. Like, <laughs> did, I, did I abandon some of that legacy? Well, not to sit you on the couch and psychoanalyze you, but I think about this specific dilemma quite a bit. Mm. Because, you know, you, you said you, you, that paid your student loans off. It seems like there are so many ways in which, especially black folks are kind of set behind that we have to like triage our lives to take one injustice or one thing we'd rather hold on to and pay for the other thing, right? Mm. So would your folks have been dishonored to know that you use that to get an education? I don't know. You know, those are those yeah. are tough questions. And, and, you know, for me, my family, the two things they were all about were education and land ownership. Yeah. And if those two had come into conflict, I don't, would they have understood, you know, if, if I had to pay off my loans with selling a piece of the house? You know, that, that, those are tough questions. And we're put in those tough situations by history. Yeah, more than other folks. Is <laughs> yes. your family a, a farming family? Because you're from the South, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, my uh, grandmother still owns a farm that I spent a good portion of my childhood on. You know, oh. I used to go take care of the ducks um, <laughs> and, and the pigs. And I the dogs. So, yeah, I used I to run around and get burnt by hot wire as a kid. That was a jam. <laughs> Does she have any war stories about some of the stuff that the folks in your piece went through? Yeah, the fun stu- stuff about this is actually after running the story, uh-huh. um, hearing all the stories from my family about wow. people coming to take the land, about, wow. you know, all these big companies. I'm not going to name them here, so I, I don't want to get in trouble. Um, yeah. But, yeah, big companies came in and, and tried to take the land. And um, almost everybody in my family has one of those stories. And they fought. And they fought. This is the thing that's so crystal clear in your story. And I just, like, have been grappling with this since I read it. Like, the story of these farmers, the story of the Scott family, it shows that, like, our government is not better than us. Our government is a manifestation of us. So whatever isms as a society that we're dealing with, they become part of the way the government implements itself. You know, right. if if you have a population that is grappling with racism, uh, the outcomes from that population's government will probably be racist. You know, what what goes in comes out. And so, like, how is there any way to have a government that's fair <laughs> unless you get all the people that help make the government <laughs> and vote for it and select it and fund it, make them fair, too? Well, yeah, not only is the government us, it, how we govern, how we behave ourselves in the collective it becomes imbued with national mythology and significance Mm. right Mm. so one thing that i wish i'd talked about a little more in the piece is is is, this is land that's first stolen in the first place right it was it was (laughs) stolen from indigenous americans from the choctaw in mississippi and that becomes part of the national mythology it doesn't become something oh where lots of people are looking at like oh this is evil People took pride in that for most of American history, really, that that they had wrested this land from Native Americans. And that became part of the 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 frontier spirit of Mississippi was these white folks went out there in their plantations and they tamed the land that was stolen, that was taken from for them by force. So that force narrative, that dominion narrative becomes a part of the culture of the South, of Mississippi in particular, and it's, it has no choice but to permeate every other piece yeah. of legislation, every other piece of organization we build on top of that foundation, it, it's still on that foundation. 
Time for one more quick break. When we come back, we haven't even begun to talk about what happens to the land once owned by black farmers after they lose it. BRB. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sir Kensington's. Introducing new ranch and vinaigrette dressings in a variety of tasty flavors. Made with simple, quality ingredients and always non-GMO. Sir Kensington's declares all salads welcome because they believe a salad is more of an open question than a statement. Start yours with a dollar off your next purchase at SirKensington's.com slash Sam Sanders. Sir Kensington's. Abandon all bland. Let's play some games, everybody. I'm Ophira Eisenberg, host of NPR's Ask Me Another. Are you looking for the answer to life's funnier questions? Zamboni? That is correct. Every week, we blend comedy plus a special celebrity interview. Jim Gaffigan. I've always done acting. i just never gotten roles. Listen and tell your friends. One of the things you write about is that when we see a bunch of farmers across the country start to sell their land off to some big farms and such, you know, these big corporations, increasingly farmland that goes to these big companies, a lot of it ends up with TIAA. This is the Retirement and Pension Fund? Yeah. What in the world? So I have TIAA retirement. That means, like, I own a little bit of some catfish money? What is this? Yeah, you own a little bit of the Delta, so uh, you should okay. go down there and... and, and, and <laughs> Take a little steak. time in, 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 in your place. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. The reason why I brought them into the story mm-hmm. um, is not because I think TIAA and other pension funds are necessarily like the villains of the story. Mm-hmm. It's, it's to show exactly what happens uh, and, and how uh, the, the over, over generations and decades a theft becomes legitimate. And... Mm. Uh, to me, they are symbols of how Wall Street in America kind of papers over every single thing, yeah. right? Well, because TIA didn't do anything illegal. They bought this land later, but <laughs> the land was stolen from other folks before, and so now they kind of have stolen land. Like, what is their responsibility to that fact? Yeah, and, and not just necessarily stolen land. Like, what what is your responsibility in a region built by slavery? That mm. uh, was stolen as a matter of of course, where sharecropping created every single parcel of of arable land that is is ownable now, mm. and on top of which the theft that I write about in this piece happened. Yeah, what is your responsibility there? How can you build ethical guidelines in investing that account for all of those things and don't just say, oh, maybe we shouldn't invest here? I don't yeah. know. Those are questions that uh, you know, I, I'm I'm. I don't know if I'm smart enough to answer those questions, but I do want to have people asking them. Yeah. Well, and a, a company as big as TIAA, them buying up farmland is just proof that this stuff has a good return on investment. Like, they're making money off of this. So, like, this land is worth a lot. Well, it didn't used to be, actually. It's oh. only only in the last 10 years or so, 12 years or so, when anybody thought that farmland was a good investment class. What and what changed? happened, number two things happened. One was a great recession. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, great recession made all kinds of real estate more attractive across the country. Huh. And you saw corporatization, Wall Street. Because it got cheaper? Got cheaper. The dollar got a little weaker. 
and real estate itself just became, you know, it, it was a buyer's market. Um, huh. When you have people lose a lot of their land, it's just, you know, scale is the number one thing investors are looking for. And when so hmm. much is on the market, they can achieve that scale. Hmm. The other thing that happens um, is we are looking at a resource crisis that's just basically inherent to the human condition, right? Hmm. We have too many people on Earth. And one thing we know will increase in value almost infinitely as that population goes up oh. is food. Yeah. So there GIA it is. GIA is not stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're looking for a retirement fund, if you want to invest long term, there's almost invest nothing better food. you can invest in that's more stable uh, in this world economy than, than food and land. Wow. How much land does farmland, catfish land, does TIAA own? TIAA owns about 80,000 acres of land in Mississippi. Wow. Uh, and most of that's in the Delta. And wow. if you go over to Arkansas, um, uh-huh. it, it owns about 130,000 total acres. Well, and, and, you know, just talking about TIAA and kind of going back to some of the conversations in our politics right now, when you think of a big issue on the left, like reparations, to really get at all of it and to make some of these folks like the Scott family whole, it requires a conversation not just about what the federal government needs to do, but about what some of these big companies like TIAA might need to do as well. Right. Uh, what's clear is that TIAA alone uh, owns about as much land in the Mississippi Delta as do black folks. When you include just one or two of the other pension funds, because TIAA is not the only one, they clearly surpass what black folks have owned and perhaps what black folks have ever owned in the Delta. Mm. That's remarkable. You know, these are, are you know, if you put them all together, it's probably about seven or eight companies that own more than like black folks can dream of owning you know and that, that's that's something that's just so mind-boggling of, to me yeah. well and like some of the very land that TIA owns <laughs> was taken from those black farmers over time we cannot we, we we can't get to the actual provenance of all of the land uh, in, in those portfolios and that's one thing I do want to stress okay. um just because it's impossible it's yeah. impossible to do. Yeah. So what I what I'm what I say here is, you know, we know that these areas and you know these we have plots that are adjacent to places we know were watered by theft uh, in the blood of black folks. We know lots of these places were built by sharecropping. So what I try to make clear here is that it is unclear exactly which plots of land are owned by TIAA and which ones were stolen from black folks. What ended up happening to Elena Scott White and her family? You know, they had all this land. They lost a lot of it, tried to pivot to catfish. They had this lawsuit. Like, did they make it out okay? (laughs) Did they ever (laughs) become made whole? You know, they they got millions of dollars back from the federal government. They got Mm -hmm. uh, most of the original land back that was both in the uh, catfish uh, plant that Ed Scott Jr. created and uh, in uh, some of the other fields that he uh, was farming. They got most of it back. Um, They are still at work right now in clearing some of it and Mm -hmm. in planting soybeans across most of it. Uh, Right now, if you go out there, it looks like the rest of the farms. It's big soybean farms, you know. Um, But but I still get the sense that this is, uh, like all farmers, really, of that level, still difficult. And it's 
added difficulty because they are starting from 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 zero. You know, they don't have the decades of productivity now. That that the land was fallow in lots of places for for uh-huh. for years. They had to clear yeah. it. They had to basically invest money that they should not have ha- have had to invest back into the land to make it productive in the first place. So yeah. they are definitely starting. If you're looking at from similarly scratch, situated, yeah, from less than <laughs> scratch. If you're looking at similarly situated farmers with the same amount of land, they're definitely, you know, starting behind the eight ball compared to those folks. I wonder what would have happened to Mississippi, the state where the Scott family is, if these black farmers weren't treated so poorly. You know, at one point, you write in the piece, the state was majority black. Now it's majority white, and the majority of farmers there are white. Could there have been a majority black farming state in Mississippi (laughs) if this history didn't happen? We are not lucky that I have editors, actually, because uh, I had a pretty lengthy kind of a piece written that was almost like a speculative fiction um, piece of this, this piece. <laughs> Some Afrofuturism. Uh, a little bit of Afrofuturism. Delta style. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> um, that got cut for uh, what are probably obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> but I did do a lot of thinking about this, um, trying to retrace the individual pressures that moved people out during the Great Migration and mm-hmm. identify land, lack thereof, as probably the major factor. So let's say people didn't move and did get the right to vote in Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, and Georgia, right? Mm-hmm. Just just those states, just that, that, that swath of states. You got four states that are going to be at least 40% black, I believe, going into the, 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 the present day post-voting rights. That's four states where you're going to have reliably, probably, one or two black senators. You're going to have mm-hmm. a pretty strong black electoral college vote. Mm. For how many elections? You know, you got 40 years worth of elections, 50 years worth of elections, post-voting rights act. How much would that have changed America? Van Newkirk, thank you so much. I have been a fan for so long, and I'm so happy to share this story and share a bit of you with our audience. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Van Newkirk. His cover story in The Atlantic is called The Great Land Robbery. It's out now. Listeners, we're back on Friday with our usual wrap of the week of news and culture and everything else. For that episode, every week, you can share with me the best thing that's happened to you all week. Record yourself on the phone. Send that file to me via email to samsanders at npr.org. Samsanders at npr.org. You might hear yourself in Friday's podcast episode and also maybe too on the radio. All right, listeners, per usual, thank you for listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.